Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. The first thing I ask people to do is look around your life and figure out if you have any villains in your space. Because if you do, it's time to fire them. And oftentimes people find out that they're their number one villain. Never in those prior 14 years did I have people just show up trying to help me. That hadn't happened. And suddenly I saw it happen time and time again. And it was overwhelming the support that I got. If you're the person that's vying for the attention, begging for it and trying to say why you're so great, it's because in your heart of hearts, you don't feel that way. You know, one of the beautiful things about truly discovering confidence is realizing you don't need anyone else to recognize it once you recognize it within yourself. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Heather Monahan. Heather was running an advertising department for one of the largest radio networks in the country. And one day she found herself out of a job. And so she decided to do something different. She tweeted about it. What came next after that tweet is no less than remarkable. So if you are someone who has thought about writing a book or becoming a sought after speaker and have no clue how to do it, this episode is packed with super actionable things for you to do very specifically. If you're someone that needs to reinvent yourself, this episode is going to help you in that area too. Okay. Before we get into today's episode, if you find or have found yourself in a situation where you have to reset your business or reset your life because of all the things that are going on in the world right now with COVID, or you just need a good pivot and want some coaching and accountability, I want to help you. I'm going to do some free 30-minute coaching discovery calls to see how I can help you. All you have to do is go to workhardplayhardcoaching.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call. Okay, please enjoy this episode with Heather Monahan. Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I think a great jumping off point would be to talk about growing up. I think I'm going to say this right in Worcester. 
Did I say that right? Oh, you nailed it. That's really impressive. Here's what I want to talk to you about first. In what ways did growing up being raised by a single mom, raising four kids, not having a lot of money on food stamps, in what ways do you think that affected you, maybe positively and, and or negatively? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, profoundly, that's sort of when we look back at our childhoods, whatever they may be, you know, you just described mine, everyone's got their own, you know, those, those are really the foundations building blocks from which we view ourselves and view the world. So for me, I really viewed the world as not a really bright place, you know, a really hard, challenging world and that one that you have to scrap and work your butt off for and really, you know, just work to make money. So for me, I just always saw that that was the world the way that it was. And at nine years old, I started, you know, I had my own paper route and then I started bussing tables and then I started waiting tables and then bartending. And, you know, it was just this evolution of one job to the next, never stop, never take time off. And it really built a foundation and a lens through which I saw the world. Yeah, for sure. And are both your parents still alive? No. They're not. Okay. You know, it's uh, it's interesting how much our childhood affects, you know, and I think particularly, you know, sort of in that Northeast, I don't know, maybe scrappier part of, you know, in, uh, like New England. I grew up in New York and it's just, it's different. Like I live here in LA now and it's kind of a different vibe, you know, like, sure. you know, like my dad went to the bar after work and he's got an Irish background, you know? So, yeah. you know, it's just kind of like a different sort of vibe. All right. So I want to fast forward a bit to you getting fired uh, from your corporate gig. Mm -hmm. Can you take us through the story from maybe say the moment that the boss's daughter called you in all the way to sitting at home with, uh, with your, your, your weighted binky trying to figure out what to do next while you're drinking your glass of Chardonnay? Yeah, just to give a little color background for your listeners, for you know, 20 plus years, I was in corporate America. I reached the C-suite. I was a chief revenue officer in my tenure at the company. I had more than doubled the company's revenue. When I entered the company, it was billing $100 million annually. When I exited, it was in excess of $200 million. I certainly had done a fantastic job, won countless awards, and I was just named one of the most influential women in radio when... The CEO I had reported to for 14 years became ill. He elevated his daughter and she fired me immediately. And so my path and career trajectory up until that point had been very clearly lit. I knew that, you know, corporate America was where I, you know, that was my lane. That's what I was great in sales and sales leadership. And ultimately I wanted, you know, I aspired to be a CEO of a company. And that had always just been the path I was on since. I, you know, started in sales. So for me, getting fired was never in the cards. I had never been fired from anything. I'm a, you know, class A overachiever. I outwork everyone, you know, I don't disappoint. So it was really shocking. And I, in order to land a position in the C-suite, you have to sign away a lot of your rights. And one of the things I signed away was an ability to stay in the media industry, which I had been in for 20 years. That's where my expertise and my network really were. And when I took that position as chief revenue officer, I signed an agreement that said, if I'm fired and or if I quit, I cannot remain in that or compete in that industry for 12 months after the day I leave the industry. 
So when I went home, I thought long and hard about, okay, I... I cannot stay in the industry where I'm viewed as an expert, where I have a lot of weight. If I'm going to start over somewhere, meaning I'm going to, you know, I, I can't be in the digital business. I can't be in the audio business. I can't be in the television business. I can't be in any type of media. Okay. What am I going to go into the airline business now? You know, where am I going to begin? And I, and I just started looking at all the different industries out there. And then I thought, if I'm going to take a chance and roll the dice on something and start over as a rookie, why don't I just take a chance on me? And I kind of just put a toe in the water and I posted on social media, Hey, I've just been fired and I don't know what I'm going to do. And if I've ever impacted you in any way over the past couple of decades in corporate America, I'd love to hear from you. And that post went viral and ultimately led me to getting on the Elvis Duran show And when I was halfway through the interview with Elvis, he said, well, obviously you're writing a book, Heather. And I laughed and said, well, obviously, but I really wasn't. And, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing, but I took his confidence in me and that conviction that he had in me and belief he had in me. And I parlayed that into an opportunity on the flight home to Google, how do you write a book? Because I didn't have any idea. And essentially it says you need to be disciplined and sit for X amount of hours a day and write. And so I knew I could do that. I knew if it came to hard work and discipline that that's my wheelhouse. And I sat for the next few weeks and just wrote and wrote and wrote and then just took the next logical step and found an editor and then sent him everything. And then, you know, I just moved very quickly the same way I had operated in corporate America because speed to market is critical in any business. And back then I was still wondering, it's a little over two years ago, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to do this full time, but I'm just going to give it my all right now and go for it. In the end, I, I had a book, Confidence Creator. I, I launched the book on Amazon at Trump Trump for number one in business biography list. And that led me to speaking, which is the best way to sell books, which launched my speaking career. So it's really been you know, essentially me just traveling into uncertainty, not knowing, trying to reinvent and create different revenue streams, different businesses around working for myself, which I had no prior experience in. Did you have a a previous relationship with Elvis uh, Duran that sort of allowed you to take his confidence in you in a different way? Or was it just somebody that you just met for the first time? No, when I when I posted that I had just been fired, Froggy from the Elvis Duran show tweeted at me, hey, I'd love to help you. And I tweeted back, great, get me on the show. And he did. And so I, I didn't know any of them. That's interesting. So, but, but you were in sort of the radio world. It's interesting that a DJ would tweet back at you and be willing to offer that for you. It's almost like there was some, I don't know, like some universal act at play there. You know what I mean? Well, I, I truly believe that the the most impactful, important thing that happened through all of us was that I fired the number one villain in my life. I had been working side by side with a woman who hated me for 14 years. And she'd been my peer for 14 years. She became my boss for you know a quick minute before she fired me. But she was always trying to sabotage me, always putting me down. I was in a very toxic environment for a really long time. And that day she thought she fired me. I had actually fired the most negative person in my life. And when you do that, you create space and opportunity for positive, more like-minded people 
to show up for you. And, and I truly believe that that's what happened because never in those prior 14 years did I have people just show up trying to help me. That hadn't happened. And suddenly I saw it happen time and time again. And it was like a domino effect. It was just, it was overwhelming the support that I got. Uh, so you sort of created the vacuum in the space to be able to allow that to happen, which you didn't do prior to ending the, the, uh, the corporate gig. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I definitely preach to anyone who's struggling with, you know, hardships and career and, and looking for ways to build confidence within themselves. The first thing I ask people to do is look around your life and figure out if you have any villains in your space, because if you do, it's time to fire them. And oftentimes people find out that they're their number one villain. Hmm. That's interesting. I want to touch on a couple of things. The first one is I want to talk about writing a book because you're not, um, quote unquote, an author or you weren't prior to this. And a lot of people talk about writing a book, but when they think about writing a book, they get all freaked out and I don't know how to do it. And where do I begin? But you literally said, you went on Google and said, how do I write a book? And it was like, you sit down and write a book basically. So what was it, you know, sort of looking back now, or maybe, you know, what advice you would give people who are, you know, in a, in this time right now where they maybe have some more time where they're home and now's a perfect opportunity to sit down. Are there any couple, any tips that you think would be helpful for them in order to write a book? Yeah. Right now is the perfect time. Do not overthink things. There's one time in my life, I remember when I was pregnant, uh, you know, 12 years ago, and I was put on bed rest the last four weeks of my pregnancy. And I literally had to lay around and I thought, you know what, this would be a great time to learn a new language, to learn Spanish, which would be really helpful for me. And instead of doing that, I worked and I dug into spreadsheets and did more research in my industry and just worked. And that's one thing I look back on my life. And I said, you know what? I had this great opportunity. I had this window of time to do something. And I didn't just create value for myself. And I always look back and think if I could do it differently and go back to that day, I would have learned Spanish or at least, you know, build a foundation for it. And for in eight hours a day, I could have sat for four weeks and created some value for myself. And I didn't do it. So the advice that I give to other people is you have that window of time right now, right? Like we all have four or eight weeks or whatever it's going to be that we can't be jumping on a plane and going to a meeting and, you know, be out doing these things that we need to do. And that's out of our control. So instead, why not invest in yourself today? Don't overthink it. Take action. There are millions of great ideas out there. The difference is some people execute on them and take action and go for it. And some people sit with these ideas and pontificate about what could be. And so you sat there and you started writing. Was it like a couple of hours a day? Were you doing it in the morning? Were you doing it in between, you know, taking care of your child? Like what, what did the process look like? Oh my gosh, you're like overthinking it. And this is what people do. So it was just, I committed to six hours a day and that was it. So it's on me. Whenever I want to get it done, do it, right? So it's not like people always say, did you do it on the computer? Did you do it with a pencil? Did you do it in a journal? It doesn't matter. Maybe some days I did it on a piece of scrap paper. It doesn't matter. It just matters that you do. It's the whole magic of it is in the action, not in the thinking or in the philosophy. I just did. So every day it was six hours a day. And it was, it's like, if you want to go lose weight and you decide that you're going to work out one hour a day, it's just like budgeting and figuring out when you can make that happen. Some days I did it first thing in the morning. Some days I did it last thing in the day and stayed up really late. It didn't matter. It was just essential that I get the work done. Got it. But the work was defined as six hours a day. 
Exactly. Okay, cool. I want to talk about speaking. Uh, you then went from book, from creating a book into the world of speaking. How difficult was it for you to land that part of your life? So I didn't know that speaking was a business. Again, I had been in corporate America for, you know, two plus decades and that's the business and world that I knew. We didn't pay speakers in the media business. So it it was not a business to me. However, once I had the book, the product was done and it was being in the process of being published. I Googled, how do you sell books? And it said, speak. So I know how to do that. I've spoken for two decades at my old job. That was, you know, I would travel around the country and speak at conferences and speak to sales teams and speak for customers. So I knew I could do that. I just made a list of every company, every CEO or CRO that I had great relationships with. And I just started hitting the phones and I would call and say, Hey, it's Heather. How are you? And how are things going? Listen, wanted to come in and add some value to you and your team. I'm out right now in the speaker circuit and I'm talking about innovation in the workplace, collaboration, all centered around this idea of building confidence within ourselves and our cultures so that we can grow revenues and exceed this year. Everybody would say yes, right? So they then they knew me too. So I there was a relationship there, and so I just built out this speaker. You know, I was speaking probably three or four times a week just to get the books selling and moving. And then one day I called a company and they said, "Sure, what's your fee?" And I said, "What do you mean by that?" And they said, "What's your speaker fee? We have a budget." And so I googled speaker fees, and then that unlocked this whole new world billion dollar industry, which I had, or multi-billion dollar industry, which I wasn't privy to prior to this. And I started researching top speakers, top paid speakers, speaker ranges. And I started finding out, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk gets $200,000 a speech. And I was blown away because I was really focused on this idea of I need a product to sell. And that product is going to be the book. Well, now by taking action and taking chances, I had accessed a new revenue stream that I didn't even know existed. And it's so important for people to know that it's about taking the action and taking the chance and you'll start unraveling the opportunities because of the steps that you take. So I start learning more and more about that business. And then I learn, okay, I'm fishing in the wrong pool. I'm fishing in this pool that I know, the media world. And 90% of those companies don't pay. So a couple of people were paying me here and there, but not, not a lot. So I started Googling, who knows the right pool of people? There's a pool of companies out there that pay. Someone has got to be in, you know, have this list. I want that list. And so essentially, through a lot of work on Google and just researching the industry, I discovered there's agents and there's bureaus. And then there's marquee bureaus that are really the blue chips, the ones that, you know, Bill Clinton speaks for or Obama, you know, really highly regarded successful people. So I set my sights on Harry Walker Speaker Agency because that really seemed, in my experience from researching, to be the premier bureau. And so I found out who the president of the company was and I crafted an email and I had taken a screenshot of my book, Trumping Trump, for number one on business biography. And you know, because of my background in sales and business, I knew I needed to come up with a unique value proposition. So I researched his speaker roster, which was massive and really impressive. And I found a white space that I felt like I filled. And I just wrote this email about why I believed he needed to add me to his roster, how I could fill a gap that he currently had, and how I could potentially create new revenue for him as well as elevate 
the female offerings that he had on his site because he did not have an equal amount of strong female speakers as he did male. And I was bringing a little bit of a, a diverse perspective. Nobody else on there had Trump Trump with their book. Nobody else on there had been a previously a chief revenue officer. I went through all the things that were unique about me. And so he responded immediately and said, wow, great points. Yeah, you do bring something unique. We're going to go ahead and add you to the roster. So then what I did was I took... I Googled all of their competitors, right? And there's maybe 10 or 12 really big bureaus that compete against them. So I made a target list of all 10. I figured out who the president and CEO was of each of those operations. And then I leveraged he, him adding me to his roster as the introductory email I would send to every one of the other competitors. Hey, want to reach out and let you know, I just joined Harry Walker. They thought it was a great idea for me to reach out and just introduce myself. Don't know if you have that same white space that they have. And I'd go right back into my pitch. And so I was added to, I think, eight out of the 10 that I reached out to by leveraging the first one. So it was sort of that domino effect of, you know, continuing to elevate myself in this new business, continuing to increase contacts and network, and then about building relationship and rapport in this new business so that people would trust in me and believe in me and give me a shot and start pitching me for these paid speaking engagements. Brilliant. So how do you, um, how do you price yourself when you're dealing with something like that when it's brand new? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. So I called a lot of people. I researched a lot online and what I found out was that really a baseline in that bureau world is no one's on a site like that. That's charging less than 10,000. That was sort of the entry point. Yep. So I decided, okay, I'll just go in at entry level because the marketplace will determine my worth. And you know, if I close a few at this price point, then I know that I can start to adjust up. But I didn't want to outprice myself. I, st- I didn't have any you know, prior knowledge. As I developed rapport with the agents and, and with the different bureaus, they were able to help guide me. But I... You know, I just thought I'm going to start at the baseline, that intro point, because you didn't want to undervalue yourself because then no one's going to take you seriously. And I saw people doing that. There were people on different sites that would set the, you know, $2,000 for this or $1,500 for this. And it just, to me, it looked like it was cheapening who they were or what their offerings were. And I, one part of this process is you need to have testimonials just like you would with, you know, how I had with my old business, you know, that people had great experiences working with me and that I delivered results, this was no different. So all the speeches that I had been giving, I had been accumulating along the way testimonials of my work. And when I would compare my testimonials to other speakers, they were very similar. And some of these people were charging $50,000, $75,000. So I felt really comfortable going in at the 10 mark. People gladly paid that fee. I would go to these events, there'd be multiple speakers, and then I'd get testimonials after saying I was the best speaker there. And that's when I started elevating my price. And I would just go you know, by increments of five until you started testing the market. And, and what's been interesting is now, this week, I have people, it's like an entire market reset because every speaking engagement has been canceled across the country. I have people reaching out to me suggesting that I work for them for $5,000 in May when, you know, before coronavirus hit, I was getting $20,000 without anyone blinking an eye. So it's sort of interesting to watch the marketplace reset and respond to different situations that, you know, go on with the economy. How challenging is it um, to go on a speaking tour versus kind of the work that you were doing two years ago? In other words, are you in, you know, is it a completely different life for you where you're on the road all the time or, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. No, it's, 
Um, it's very similar. So I traveled every single week. I was in charge of I don't know, a few hundred radio operations across the country. So I would travel to all the different marketplaces as well as travel to our marquee advertisers to further the relationships and continue to upsell the clients. So I was always on the road and I was managing operations across the country. So that was challenging in a trying to be everywhere type of a situation, which is really no different than speaking, right? Because you don't get to say, all right, I'm just going to do New York and Boston this month and it'll be easy on, you know, sometimes you're taking a red eye back from LA to make a speaking engagement in Boston because they're paying you the price that, you know, where you set your bar and it's a great opportunity. So you're sort of at the hands of wanting to make it in a new industry. You need to show up for these things and they don't always work for your schedule the way that you would like them to. But I believe that's part of you know being new and, and being a year in in any business. I remember when I was first got into sales, it was the same way. I, I wasn't picking up the biggest advertisers in the marketplace because they were all taken by the more senior level executives, right? So you have to build your business whatever way you can. And, and I've learned that that typically means you're traveling all over the place on the hours that work for the clients that you're showing up for. Yep. Got it. You are extraordinarily confident. In fact, you wrote the book on confidence. So what is the difference between cockiness and confidence? So I think it's a huge difference. You know what? I've been seen as cocky earlier in my career. And the reality is someone who's behaving in a cocky or arrogant fashion is very insecure. If you're the person that has to be the loudest in the room, and I've been there, if you're the person that's vying for the attention, begging for it and trying to say why you're so great, it's because in your heart of hearts, you don't feel that way. You know, one of the beautiful things about truly discovering confidence is realizing you don't need anyone else to recognize it once you recognize it within yourself. Yeah, I got it. You know, you've got a strong, really strong business game and you're not afraid to ask for the things that you want. Where do you think that came from? Was it from your parents or was it from your environment or is it just in your DNA? Where did that come from? No, it's from trial and error and experience. So everything I think is a numbers game. You just get better and better at something the more you do it. I started in sales at nine years old when I was selling papers. And then it went to busing tables and then waiting tables and then bartending and then a salesperson for Gala Winery. Then I was selling air in the radio business. Then I was leading team selling air. Then I was a chief revenue officer. All of these are just taking sales to the next level and the next level. And selling really, you know, selling air is very challenging. It's not a tangible product that you can showcase in front of someone like a book is. So I learned different ways to excel in sales and And that is not something that I believe you're born with. It's something that you learn through trial and error. Why do you think people have so much trouble stepping into that muscle? I mean, maybe they don't need to. I'm not sure why why people would have a hard time. I mean, you know, as a sales leader, I, I would see that typically the new salespeople that we would hire each year, we'd bring in a group of new people, probably 25 to 35% of them would make it. And typically what I would find is people didn't want to put the hard work in because in those first year to two years, it's really tough. You know, breaking into any new industry can be challenging because all the good clients are taken. You know, there's these people that are just experts getting paid so much more, making so much more money above you and can become frustrating. But if you don't put that work in, and I always say to everyone, if success was easy, everybody would have it, right? If 
if you didn't have to, if you could just jump over those first two years, yeah, it'd be easy. It would be great. But you wouldn't be able to get to that third year if you don't put the time in in those first two years. And, and I see now for myself, you know, in the speaking business, it's the same way. I know that certain friends of mine that are, you know, five years ahead of me, they're not taking red eyes to do the speaking engagement and that one the way that I am. Well, they don't need to because they did that five years ago. I'm doing it now and putting the time and the effort in now because I'm the one that's in the rookie position and it'll pay off tenfold. Got it. Because you've seen it, you've seen it pay off tenfold throughout your career. Right. I've, I've seen this movie so many times and it is no different. There's something beautiful as we get older where we can just sort of like look back on the years and go, okay, look, yes, I'm a rookie now, but that's not going to be that way for long. I can suck it up for, you know, three, four, five years and it'll, it'll pay off for me. Yeah, Um, really. That is the beautiful thing about age is that experience and insight that you gain versus the lack of patience when you're younger. Yeah, for sure. Um, What is Boston Heels and where'd you come up with that idea? So having grown up poor and when I was young, the only boss I ever knew, didn't matter what job I was in, it was always a white man in his 60s, navy blue pantsuit. The quote unquote boss always looked the same to me. There was never this idea that women would be the boss, right? And so for me, when I finally did make it to chief revenue officer and and realized, you know, there's nothing different than me or these other people. I might look different, but I can be respected. I can deliver results. And in fact, I can deliver more results than these other people. I wanted to open other people's eyes to that, that, you know, you can be a boss in heels. You can be a boss in flip-flops or a boss in sneakers. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be the boss in a navy blue pantsuit with the gray hair. And I didn't have that visual as a young adult. I didn't even know to aspire that as a young adult. And it was really important to me to share my story so that people didn't think, hey, this woman just turned up, you know, looking like this and so successful and, you know, delivering these results. No, that was built over 25 years of failure, success, failure, success, back and forth and figuring it out. And I just wanted people to know that anyone can aspire to, to become the CEO or, or any position. It's not about how you look. It's about how you deliver. Got it. It's a great visual too. I like it. You recently sat down with uh, a man who orchestrated uh, three presidential victories. What was the most important thing that you took away from that conversation? Oh, Philip, he's such a great guy. I actually just hired him to do a day to dive into my audience so that I could gain some insights. You know, one of the things that he opened my eyes to is that presidential elections are so orchestrated. It, you know, as just a naive voter, I didn't think that way uh, prior to really understanding what it is that he does. But the amount of insight, I mean, they can foresee he has been predicting every sing- single primary along the way correctly weeks before it happens. And he can do that by analyzing the data and then seeing how the candidates are marketing themselves through advertising. It's really shocking. I totally recommend everyone to check that episode out because it's essentially this negative advertising works. And I know that everyone hates the negative ads. I do too. But you know, Phil's built an entire business off of that. And he was giving the analogy that when someone wanted to compete against Nike, someone had a clothing line and they were getting crushed by Nike. They decided to say, just don't do it. Don't buy clothing from a shoe company. And when they did, they implemented that ad campaign, which isn't malicious, right? It just has a little bit of a different spin on it. Their product line exploded. And so what he's done is he's taken these insights that he learned in the political world, and now he's applying it to big brands and and different um, 
businesses. And like I said, I, I just hired him to do an analysis on my audience and help me figure out what is resonating more with them, how to do a better job serving my audience through his data analysis. It's interesting. I like how your brain thinks. You really, really think very, very differently than most people. Um, and I think that that's probably served you really well in your life. I want to ask you a different sort of question. You are currently living now in Miami in South Beach. Is that right? Yes. I really believe that where you live is important and it really informs kind of like who you are. So what would you say is the best part and worst part about living where you live? The best part is I love being outdoors in the sun. I love the beach. I love the palm trees. I mean, like you mentioned before, growing up in Worcester, it was so incredibly different. It was sort of gloomy and a lot of three-deckers and not a lot, you know, never the ocean. We couldn't see the water. So I am really grateful for the environment I live in today because of where I grew up. I love that. One of the things I don't love about this city, it's incredibly transient, mm. you know, so it's that part's different than where I grew up. No one ever left where I lived. So you always knew everyone and you knew their parents and their grandparents. And, you know, there was this real deep rooted sense of community and that I have not found in Miami. Yeah. Mark Wahlberg is probably the only one that ever left. Yeah, I get it. Um, <laughs> for, for sure. Um, so... I want to talk about work-life balance. The show is called Work Hard, Play Hard, and we kind of cover both ends of the spectrum. Um, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your satisfaction with the work part of your life and how would you rate the play part of your life? It changes at different times, right? So like right now, I'm my son's home and we're in this coronavirus window and it's kind of cool because we're getting to eat three meals a day together and review every single one of his classes together and spend every you know day together. And that's kind of wild. It's It's been really refreshing because we haven't been able to do that. He's always been at school and I'm at work. And so this is really you know, I really appreciate this time. And, um, it, it's actually really, it's been really fun, you know, isolated. So I'm just talking about his and, and my relationship has been really cool. I would say that since I've gotten fired, there's been tremendous pressure on me as a single mom to deliver revenues and drive revenues rapidly. So that part, I've definitely foregone a lot of the quote unquote fun, right? Like my friends were all flying to Vegas for five days and I, I, I'll take a pass. You know, right now is not the time for me to be doing that because I'm building a business. Again, I'm a rookie in this business and I'm not going to fail. And I know I need to put the time in. So is that ideal? No, absolutely not. But I also know, I've seen, like I said, I've seen this movie when I first started out in radio I was working around the clock those first few years. And that's what set me apart from everybody else. That's why I became an equity partner at 24 years old, you know, and, and made a substantial amount of money in my early 20s. That's why I built a name for myself and was able to land a VP of sales position for a major company when I was 28. All these different things that I did are the reasons why I achieved very high levels of success. Now, once I achieved those levels, I was able to go on the vacations and you know spend more time and do and have more of that you know shift to you know take my friends on fun trips. I was able, I afforded myself that opportunity, but none of that happened without making the sacrifice initially to get myself to that point. Got it. So this is a season in your life and you're just recognizing that this is where you are, but you know that that's going to change at some point. 
Oh yeah, for sure. Because there's always a tipping point in any successful business, right? You can see it coming. I mean, you might not have every specific date, you know, planned out, but you know, I know where things are going. I just got off the phone with my agent and a, another publishing house today. We have a few different offers on my second book. And, you know, so there's all these different things that I have in the works. And I, again, I don't know if it's going to be in six months or in one year, but I know that tipping point is getting much and much more close to my hands every day that, you know, I take these chances, I do the work and I put forth the effort. So it's actually really exciting to watch it all unfold. Yeah, I bet. I want to talk a little bit about um, fulfillment as we uh, slowly start to wrap up here. What do, and some of these questions are going to feel like they're really out of left field. So just roll with it. Sure. What do people often get wrong about you? People might see me and think that I had this easy life and that, oh, I'm so lucky. Oh my gosh, that is so not the case. And it's sort of weirdly what sets me up really well for this coronavirus situation right now while my heart breaks for everybody going through this terrible time, I feel like I was born for this. I have been through so much freaking adversity in my life. You know, I have friends that are calling me every night crying. How are we going to get through this? I'm like, man up kid. This is going to be fine. This is just one more challenge in our life. We will overcome this. We will learn from it and we will be better. It it doesn't even come into my mind that there's any other option than that. Mm, I love that. What is an unusual or absurd thing that you love? Eating the rest of my son's um, dinner, specifically when he <laughs> has hamburgers and french fries. <laughs> I love that. What's one goal that you thought when you achieved it, everything is going to be great? And then you got it and you're like, that didn't do it. Yeah, I would probably say hitting you know the C-suite in corporate America. That was a big goal of mine because a lot of women don't you know get that opportunity. And I really thought from a leadership perspective, wow, you know, it's that's having made it. But it was the same BS. And you know what's also comical? I want people to know it's almost easier when you get to that level. You have so much freaking support. You know, you have multiple assistants, multiple teams reporting into you. Truly, it is easier. Mm. And that's that trick that I believe I used to tell myself, like, oh, I can't imagine me actually making it there. Now that I made it, you know, and pulled the curtain back and looked behind, that's what I want people to know. It's not that those people are better than you. It's that they have more support and they're propped up to look better, but actually they have it easier. Mm, That's so good. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? One month anywhere in the world. I love Hawaii. I haven't been there in years. And I think it's such a beautiful and serene place. That would be a place I'd love to take my son on vacation with a group of people that we love. And I, I find it really relaxing there. All right. Weird one. What's one restaurant that you would go to before you die? Where would your last meal be? Oh my gosh, I'm so not a foodie. That's not something I would ever think about. But I guess if I was saying this is one of the last ones, I would definitely go to a steak restaurant where I could have mashed potatoes, bread, steak, and really eat unhealthy. That would be Smith and Walensky for you. I love Smith and Walensky. Yes, I love that place. I felt that. Uh, Walking (laughs) down Lincoln Road. Okay. Um, (laughs) So if, uh, all right, we're going to wrap up with uh, some rapid fire questions. Just answer first thing that comes to mind. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Funny. What keeps you up at night? Nothing. What's the one thing that you want to get better at? Oh my God, I want to get better at everything. <laughs> is, there, is there one in particular that's top of mind that just popped in your head? 
Um, managing my upset, staying calm and even keeled is something that I could get better at. What one book have you reread the most? I mean, I just interviewed Mark Manson yesterday. So I was, I was diving into his work a lot in the past couple of weeks to get prepared. So all of those, everything is effed, you know, type of all his books. Um, I, I really enjoy them. Yeah, he's great. What's your guilty pleasure other than you kids, French fries and hamburgers? Yeah, I mean, yeah, eating bad is definitely where I've been falsing lately. So I'll own that. Okay. Um, two questions left. If you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for and nothing that you've been speaking about, but it I could- just gave my TED talk. You did? Yeah, I actually I gave a TEDx talk October 26th, and it just got promoted to TED last week, and I'm so proud. But go ahead, finish oh, your question. Oh, that is amazing. Congratulations. I know, it's crazy. Thank super, you. Super proud of you for that. That's incredible. Thank you. Um, so if you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known about, no, nothing that mm-hmm. you're known for, nothing that you speak about, it can really be on any subject that you want. What would you do it on? Oh my gosh. I, this is not the answer you want, but I was going to say, when you do a TED talk, right, you want to do something that is memorable, that can break through, that can go viral, right? That's really, I mean, that was my goal anyways. So I did a talk, not about, I did it about the antithesis of the Me Too movement and challenging the Me Too movement. And I did that because I wanted to get attention. But if I was really looking to do something good, just, you know, out of the right reasons, I would say, I would want to more do something around how to be a great salesperson because, I feel like sales is applicable in every... It doesn't matter if you're in a sales position. You could just be a stay-at-home mom. You're still trying to sell someone on something every day, whether it be your kids or your husband. And I would want to share those strategies and techniques with everybody in the world so they can apply them to their life so they can get more of what they want. That's that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to know. Last question. What one question would... We'll switch it up. What one question would you like to ask me? Oh my gosh, you ask all these tricky questions out of nowhere. Um, What do you like best about uh, hosting your podcast? Getting to talk to people like you, honestly, because it's, you know, I am uh, anything that's on the top of my mind. um, I get an opportunity to, uh, you know, to ask really interesting people, really interesting questions. By nature, I'm a super curious guy and uh, I love podcasts. I love questions. I love um, entrepreneurship and, you know, you put it all together and, here I am. So uh, it's it's super exciting. That's so great. Well, listen, I really enjoyed this. This hour went fast. Um, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Yeah, you know, we're going through a really challenging time right now. And, you know, just having faith and, and pulling on your past experiences where you faced adversity before and you overcame it. Spend some time reflecting on that. It will make you feel much stronger today to take this on and lead with a positive attitude. Great advice. Thank you so much, Heather. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.